Hey everyone, it's Stephanie from True Crime Anonymous. I just want to tell you about this app called Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It is free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it is everything you need in a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Anonymous may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, it is Tuesday and I told you that if we hit 500 listens by this morning that I would come back and read y'all a nice little bedtime story. So as promised, I'm going to read you a story out of the book, The Crime Book, Big Ideas Simply Explained. And I did read a, read a story out of here before. Um, it's a great book. I'll leave the link in the description. I really like it. And there's a bunch of great stuff in here. But I thought tonight we would read about Jack the Ripper. Because it's almost Halloween. And I think it's a good little old classic thing that goes with Halloween. So, around 3.30 a.m. on Tuesday, August 7th, 1888, cab driver Albert Crow returned home to the George Yard buildings on London's Whitechapel Road between the areas of Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Crow found what he thought was a female vagrant passed out on the first floor landing, her green skirt and petticoat hiked up. At 5 a.m., tenant John Saunders Reeves discovered the truth. The mystery woman had been murdered. Dr. Timothy Killeen, who performed the, performed the autopsy, concluded that the victim had been stabbed nearly 40 times in her throat and abdomen. She was identified by her husband as 39-year-old Martha Tabram, who earned her living as a prostitute. But she had a husband. I guess prostitutes have husbands, too. Don't be stereotypical, Stephanie. <laughs> Anyways, investigators learned that Martha's body had not been on the landing when tenants Joseph and Elizabeth Mahoney returned home at 2 a.m. The killer must have committed the crime at some point between 2 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. <clears throat> The grisly murder of a second woman 24 days later bore striking similarities to the Tabram slaying. 
This victim was found by two workers outside a stable on Bucks Row at 3.40 a.m. on August 31st. Her genitals were exposed. Arriving at 4 a.m., Surgeon Henry Llewellyn discovered two fatal slashes running from left to right across her throat. There were also multiple post-mortem incisions to the abdomen. The warmth of her body and legs led Llewellyn to conclude that she had not been dead for longer than half an hour. A Landry mark on her petticoats from a Lambeth workhouse identified her as Marianne Polly Nichols. <clears throat> At 6 a.m. on September 8th, market worker John Davis discovered the body of a third woman in his backyard at 29 Hanbury Street in Spitalfields. Whoever had done the grisly deed had eviscerated the victim, draping her intestines over her shoulders. Like the first two victims, Annie Chapman worked as a prostitute. Her body had been posed to allude to this, with legs splayed to degrade her even in death. Dr. George Baxter Phillips arrived half an hour later, noticed that her handkerchief had been tightened around her neck, causing asphyxiation. Once again, the killer had slashed his victim's throat from left to right. A more thorough examination revealed that a portion of the uterus had been excised. Phillips estimated the time of death at, was at 4.30 a.m., or earlier. Scant clues emerged about the three murders, but an inquest but at an inquest, witness Elizabeth Long testified that she had seen Chapman speaking with a man at five thirty AM near the crime scene. She described the figure as around forty years old, with dark hair and a foreign, shabby genteel appearance. The man Long described wore a brown deerstalker cap and overcoat. The police also found a leather apron at the scene of Chapman's death. Local gossip transformed these details into the tale of the leather apron, a homicidal Hebrew who preyed upon English prostitutes. John Pizer, a Polish Jew and bootmaker with the misfortune of having the nickname Leather Apron was named by the media as a suspect in the killings. On September 10th, Pizer was arrested despite the lack of evidence against him. When Pizer was able to give an alibi for the two of the murders, he was released. He later sued a local newspaper for libel. With few leads, the people of Whitechapel took matters into their own hands. Local businessmen, concerned about the effect that the murders were having on commerce organized the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee to patrol the streets after dark. They elected a local builder, George Lusk, as the committee's chairman. Each night, the group con convened at 9 p.m. at the Crown Pub to inspect patrollers, underemployed men who were paid a pittance to walk the beat armed with nothing but a cudgel. All was quiet for a while, and the people of Whitechapel began to relax. The increased police attention and vigilantes probably deterred the killer from striking again. 
Then, on September 30th, 1888, came the double event. Two new victims were discovered within an hour of each other. At 1 a.m. in East Whitechapel, a steward on the workers of the workers' club, Louis Diemschutz, drove his pony-drawn cart into Dutfield's yard. When the animal began to act strangely, the steward s- struck a match and crept into the darkness. There, in the flickering light, he beheld the body of a woman in a pool of blood. Her dead hand clutched a packet of Cassius sweets, (laughs) used to freshen the breath. Obviously, the attack had been swift and unexpected. Later, Diemschutz testified that he believed the killer was still lurking in the yard when he came upon the body. The victim was Elizabeth Stride, a 44-year-old prostitute. However, the night's bloodshed had just begun. Within an hour, the body of a second woman was found in the south corner of Mitra Square, a 15-minute walk from Dutfield's yard. Dr. Frederick Brown attended the scene at 2 a.m. Like any Chapman, her bowels were strung over her right shoulder and her legs were spread. This time, the Ripper had used his blade on her face, slicing off the tip of her nose and eyelids and carving triangular incisions into her cheeks. During the autopsy, Dr. Brown discovered that the left kidney and part of the womb were missing. John Kelly identified the second victim as 46-year-old common-law wife Catherine Eddowes after reading in the paper about two pawn tickets found on her person. Searching along Goulston Street at 3 a.m. on the night of the double event, P.C. Albert Long happened upon a bloodied piece of apron discarded in a stairwell. A cryptic message was scrawled in white chalk on the wall. Quote, The Jews are the men that will be blamed for nothing. End quote. Police Superintendent Thomas Arnold was among the first to arrive at the scene. Fearing that the graffiti would spark anti-Semitic rioting, he ordered the Goulton Street graffito to be washed away. The high level of attention that the killings received in the media led to numerous hoax letters being sent to the investigators. While initially considered to be another hoax, a letter sent on September 27th written in red ink would come to take a particular hold on the investigation. It claimed to come from the killer and promised to clip the lady's ears off the next victim. When the autopsy of Catherine Eddowes revealed a mutilated earlobe, the police took the implications of the red letter seriously. They distributed copies of the letter among the public through the handbills, hoping to get a lead. The letter signed off with the first use of the nickname Jack the Ripper, which soon captured the public's imagination. More clues were forthcoming. On October 16th, a package arrived at the doorstep of George Lusk, the chairman of the Whitechapel 
Vigilance Committee. It contained a letter signed from hell and a human organ. Examining the organ, Dr. Thomas Horrocks Openshaw, a surgeon at London Hospital, concluded that it was a human kidney preserved in spirits. On October 19th, the Daily Telegraph reported that the kidney belonged to an alcoholic female in her mid-40s. But Dr. Openshaw himself claimed that this was impossible to determine. Ultimately, most of the police and surgeons attributed to the kidney to a morbid prank perpetrated by medical students. The last act in the Ripper's spree occurred November 9, 1888 at 13 Miller's Court, the home of a 25-year-old Irish prostitute named Mary Kelly. Thomas Boyer, a rent collector for Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, stopped by the address at 10.45 a.m. with orders to obtain 29 shillings in back rent from the tenant. After knocking on the door and recovering no answer, he peered through the makeshift curtains and swiftly recoiled. Kelly's naked body lay sprawled across her bed, hacked beyond recognition. At 1.30 p.m., Superintendent Arnold instructed, that his men, instructed his men to forcibly enter the dwelling. Upon, examination, the corpses, upon examining the corpse's state of decay, doctors Thomas Bond and George Baxter Phillips both concluded that the murder had occurred between 2 and 8 a.m. The level of mutilation was unparalleled. The victim's skin had been stripped from her legs. Her breast and internal organs had been removed and arranged around her remains, and her face disfigured by countless gashes. Only one organ, her heart, was unaccounted for. Kelly's mutilations were far worse than those of her other victims, and she was considerably younger. While police at the time investigated her murder as a ripper case, it has since been suggested that Kelly was killed by someone attempting to pass off the murder as the ripper's work, perhaps even her boyfriend, Joseph Barnett. However, Barnett was questioned by police for hours after Kelly's death and released without charge. The police were yet again unable to find any useful clues as the true identity of Jack the Ripper. Then, as suddenly as they had begun, the killings stopped. Although some similar subsequent murders were suspected to be the Ripper's work, such as the slaying of Francis Cole in February 1891, Kelly is usually considered to have been the final Ripper victim. Today, it, see, it seems inconceivable that the Ripper would be able to elude the authorities for more than a few weeks, let alone an eternity. The investigations were hampered, however, by a lack of evidence and eyewitnesses, the murders being committed so late at night in a dangerous area, and also by the inter interference of the press. Initially, the police believed that the Whitechapel murders were to be the work of local gangs, largely due to the death of Emma Smith, who was attacked by a gang on April 3, 1888, and erroneously included in Scotland's Yard's Ripper files. The police investigation was frustrated at every turn. 
In September 1888, Scotland Yard sent in Frederick George Aberlein, a policeman who had worked in, the White, in Whitechapel for 14 years before being promoted out of the area. They hoped he would be able to use his knowledge of local criminals to get some information about the killer. This was not the case. It is unlikely that the Ripper was a known Whitechapel criminal and the man worked alone. None of the criminals in the area were able to provide any useful leads for Aberlein's investigation. The Ripper was also a press sensation. Not only did articles about the murderer create more work for the police who had to deal with false leads copycats and terror in the community but journalists also went to extreme lengths to investigate the murders some followed policemen around as they investigated others went as so far to dress up like prostitutes and wait for the ripper to appear that is that is a really dumb thing to do in the more then, 125 years since, countless detectives, writers, and armchair sleuths have preferred suspects from the Duke of Clarence and his physician, Sir William Gull, to psychologically tortured wretches like Polish hairdresser Aaron Kaminsky. Today, we are no closer in to discovering the Ripper's identity than we were in 1888. At the inquest into Annie Chapman's death, Dr. Phillips put forward the opinion that the Ripper may have been a medical man due to the anatomical knowledge displayed in his removal of the victim's organs. However, Dr. Bond disagreed, stating that after Kelly, after the Kelly murder, that the killer did not even have a butcher's accuracy when it came to cutting into his victims. The image of him as a doctor or surgeon has persisted, however, thanks to reports of the Ripper carrying a Gladstone bag, often used by medical professionals. Modern social scientists largely agree that the Ripper was a resident of London's East End, Although we may never know the Ripper's real name, advances in our understanding of serial killers can provide strong indications as to the kind of person he was. There is a strong likelihood that he suffered from a chronic or episodic impotence, which may have caused him, may have caused or resulted from his abnormal and violent sexual impulses, like his fellow Rippers, Andre. Chicalito, Chicalito, and Robert Knapper, he was probably aroused by stabbing, cutting, or mutilating his victims. An alienated individual, it is likely that he struggled to form intimate interpersonal relationships, particularly with women. These deductions may perhaps explain why he targeted prostitutes. The end. <laughs> um, and it also has a little blurb saying, 
If Jack the Ripper gave birth to the modern serial killer, law enforcement must be credited for creating the serial killer's arch-nemesis, the criminal profiler. Following the murder of Mary Kelly, Dr. Thomas Bond, surgeon to the Metropolitan Police's aid division, submitted a report on the death of Kinnart, oh my god, Kinnart, I don't even know how to say that word, five, Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, and Kelly to Scotland Yard. The document has been recognized as being ahead of its time. Bond employed what is now termed linkage analysis, identifying signature techniques to establish the likelihood that a series of crimes was committed by a single individual. From the way each woman was lying down when they were murdered, each with their throat cut, Bond saw the murders as erotically motivated mutilations committed by one person. His focus was on the psychology of the killer was a big improvement on the phrenological approaches to criminal profiling that were popular at the time. This is an interesting thing. Like, it's kind of weird how I just did that mass murder Monday about the guy who took out all of his wife's organs and then I decided to do Jack the Ripper and he took out organs that is so disgusting I don't know how somebody could do that it's so gross ew, ew. but anyway that's the story um if you guys like when I read stories or dislike when I read stories let us know send emails or dms or anything just even a comment on a picture let us know hey i like when you tell stories or i hate when you tell stories because you can't read or whatever just let us know um and thank you so much for getting us to 500 listens you guys did that um we're doing this together and I thank you all so much for going on this journey with me I can't wait until we reach a thousand listens that's going to be the next goal to hit um I figured you know we did 200 and 300 or 300 400 500 now we're going to just go from 500 to a thousand I think we can do it I want to push it to seven days so, seven days from today, I want 1,000 listens, guys. I'm going to put out, we're going to put out like three episodes. So, just tell everybody you know, share it on social media, help us out here at True Crime Anonymous. Um, and... Please, please, please become a monthly supporter. Um, if you're listening from Spotify, the link is in the description there. I will put it in the link in the description um, of this episode. You literally can support us for as low as 99 cents a month. That's like less than 
you would spend on one coffee a month or whatever. So it goes 99 cents a month, 4.99 a month or 9.99 a month. It's you know, anything will help us um and it would be greatly greatly appreciated. Um and I think that's it. So there should be another episode on Halloween. Absolutely because I mean, this is True Crime Anonymous. Why would I not talk about crime stuff on Halloween? It just... It wouldn't be right, you know? (laughs) So, I've been rambling for way too long. If you're still here, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Shout out to all my international listeners. I think it's so cool that you guys live in other countries and are listening to me. That is amazing. I mean, anyone listening to my voice is like mind-blowing to me. So thank you. Shout out to everybody who's still listening to me ramble. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I will catch you in the next one. Good night.